0: Luke 18, verse 9. we We're going to read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you're not familiar with the, the Scriptures, Luke um, was a doctor and historian. He wrote one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus that we have recorded for us in the New Testament. Uh, and his is the, the longest one. And his is the only one that includes this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. So let's read this story together. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's been uh, really cool to drive around your massive city like LA is so big. And I've had the uh, the joy. My my executive pastor is from the Pasadena area. He grew up there. He's been in, in Australia now for 15 years. And so I've been driving around with a local. He's been giving me all the local knowledge of LA and all the cities and towns and and suburbs around LA. And and what we've been doing as we've been driving around is that I've been asking him for comparisons. like, can you tell me what what the equivalent comparable suburb in Sydney is to this suburb right here? And the answer generally is, there's not one. It's kind of like this and that suburb mashed together. Or it's been interesting hanging out with Lorenzo over the last couple of days and just chatting about the differences between our city, comparing cities. In fact, the thing that I have been comparing more than anything else as I've landed in your city is the coffee compared to Sydney and LA. Now, You know, one of the guys from uh, the the family I've been staying with, thought he'd take me to his favorite cafe and we ordered a coffee and he's like, do you like it? I'm like, "Mm, it's all right. But you know, in Sydney, we are obsessed with coffee and we have got world class amazing coffee in sydney so as i come to la i'm like super snobby you know looking down my nose judging your cat your cafes and like i walk in and there's no grinder i don't hear the grinder i'm like i'm out can't order coffee from this place because i need fr- i'm like i'm talking fresh ground instantly ground coffee i i, I don't want 3 minutes stale ground coffee so i'm you know making all of these comparisons about your city and your coffee. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we have this proclivity to compare. It's almost the fabric of who we are as people. We compare ourselves to other people. Life sometimes feels like just one giant game of comparison. Now, psychologists have got a term for it. They call it the social comparison theory. We all engage in it, they say. They say that when we engage in social comparison, it happens in one of two directions. We can engage in upward social comparison, that is we look up the social ladder to someone that we perceive is higher than us and it makes us feel bad about ourselves. We we engage in downward social comparison, we look down the social ladder and look at someone that we perceive to be better than and we feel good about ourselves. The problem with that is that we either end up devaluing ourselves or we end up devaluing another person. Your own Mark Twain says that comparison is the death of joy. And I think he's right. And I think Jesus agrees with him. And I think science demonstrates that. Comparison. We're addicted to it. Research tells us that women are far more likely to engage in social comparison when it comes to matters of body image, leading to thoughts of inadequacy because you are plastered with constant images of perfection. Men aren't exempt. We engage in social comparison as well. What what else would make us buy bigger trucks? What else would make us pay $9,000 for facial implants to grow a thicker beard? We compare lawns, we compare tattoos, we compare biceps, we compare motorcycles. Why is it that we compare ourselves so much? It's the, almost the fabric of human nature, and yet it leaves us depressed. So what is the solution? Well, we're told the solution is to stop comparing Stop comparing and just define your own version of success. Just compete against your own personal best. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that advice either feels like I'm lying to myself or I'm lowering the bar. So what is the solution? Well, I want to suggest a solution to you tonight that's far different from what the world of psychology might suggest the world of self-help might suggest. The question to ask is, why do we participate in that? Why do we play that game of social comparison? Psychologists call it self-evaluation. And I suggest the answer is that every single one of us have been created for a relationship with our Maker and our God. And that process is really a form of searching for approval. The approval that we so long for in our Heavenly Father, who is good and who loves us. But before we get into it, let me just say this: I think Christians, and certainly Christians in Australia, in Sydney, and my guests here as well, Christians are often the worst at this. Christians are often the worst at looking down our noses on everyone else and thinking that we're somehow better because we've got our lives together. If you were to poll people in our city and ask, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of Christian? These are some of the words that that, that researchers demonstrated. Our city, Sydney, siders say about Christians, they say hypocrite, smug, self-righteous. I don't know if that resonates or translates here, but that's so true of the reputation. Whether we like it or not, whether we really like that or not, that's what people think of us culturally. And Jesus tells this story to people who are in exactly that situation. People who are trying to validate themselves by social comparison. People who are trying to prove themselves to God by their track record. And so we have this beautiful, amazing, shocking story that Jesus tells about two men who go to the temple. They go to church. To pray. So come back with me to verse 10 as we're introduced to these two characters. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now for many of us who have grown up in the church, you're familiar with this story and you instantly make a connection in your head about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. But what we need to do is dig into the first century culture and figure out who those people are to the original hearers of Jesus' story. And so the Pharisee, he is the pinnacle of religious sincerity. He's not a paid pastor of the church. He's not an employee of the temple. He's a volunteer. But he is considered the most devout and religious person in first century culture. He's impressive religiously. He's devout. He's the church guy. He's the guy who comes to church every single week. Maybe he even serves at one service and then attends another one. And if he's really spiritual, he goes to the service at night as well. And he comes to church and he's got his leather-bound ESV study Bible. He's got the little tabs in the side and... You flick it open, man, it's got highlighter and underlining everywhere. And he sits in the front row, sorry front row seat people, but sits in the front row and he feverishly takes notes as the preacher preaches. And every now and then again, he looks up, he's like, mmm, it's good. Right? He's that guy. He's the guy who's first to put his hand up to volunteer for something when the pastor says, hey, we, we need people to help out in this. I'll do it. He never lets the giving bucket go around without putting at least something in. He's that guy. He's the church guy. He is the model of moral and religious uprightness. And as Jesus introduces the first character, that's where his original listeners go. Good guy. The tax collector, on the other hand, is at the opposite end of the social spectrum. He is a leech. What happened in the first century was that Rome sold the right... To taxation to the highest bidder. And so if you had enough money, you would purchase the right and the authority from Rome to tax your own people. Rome had no stipulations over that. As long as they got their money, you could take whatever you wanted on top of that. It was impossible to travel, to do any business without paying the tax man a visit. And so literally, tax collectors in Jerusalem in the first century, in the first century betrayed their own people to make themselves rich lining their pockets with money that they added on top of what they had to give to their enemies rome people loathed tax collectors in fact it said culturally that, that you did not need to keep your word to murderers thieves and tax collectors They would curse the ground they were walk on. In fact, if you saw one walking down the street towards you, you would cross the other side of the road so you didn't have to rub shoulders, nod your head, and politely say hi. Maybe the cultural equivalent would be a LA City parking officer. I don't know if they're the same in Sydney, but man, they are ruthless. I've spent so much money on parking fines the last two years. I used to live in the suburbs. I moved all the way to the city and I just didn't. adjust. Anyway, just me. Got a thing happening there I need to work through. But people loathed tax collectors. These two men are at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And so, as Jesus introduces this story, he tells this story, he introduces these characters, and everyone who listens to this story instantly makes a connection in their head of who they think the good guy is, the Pharisee, and who they think the bad guy is, the tax collector. And these two men go to the temple to pray. And this is what they pray. Have a look at verse 11. Firstly, at the Pharisee's prayer. This is how he prays. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So he walks into the temple and he begins to rattle off a bunch of lists. He lists the things that he doesn't do and he lists the things that he does do. He's like, God, I'm, I don't steal. God, I deal fairly with people. I, I, I care for the poor. I'm not an adulterer. If he's married, he's been faithful. If he's single, he's keeping himself pure. All of the the things that he doesn't do. And then he lists off the things that he does do. So, God, I, I fast twice a week. And just so you know, the Jewish law required them to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This guy fasts 103 times more than what's required of him. And he gives a tenth a tithe of everything that he gets of everything, like not just his income, like this guy. If you gave him a Christmas present, he would get his calculator out, estimate 10 percent of the estimated value of the present that you'd given him, and then donate it to church. That's this guy. He's impressive. Religiously, he is impeccable. There's a problem. And the problem is that he thinks, or he's, he's got a misunderstanding of what God deems as acceptable. You see, he thinks that his good works and his good reputation put him in good stead with God, makes him acceptable. And he wears his good works like a badge of honor. And he appeals to his track record to say, God, look at all of these things that I've done. first mistake that he makes is to think that that impresses God. The second mistake that he makes is that he plays the comparison game. He stands in the temple and he prays and he has one eye on himself and his own goodness and he's got another eye on the tax collector. And he looks down the social ladder and he thinks to himself, oh, pretty good. I've got this. Of course God would love me. Look at me. He gives himself a round of applause, a pat on the back. The problem is he's failed to compare himself to God. He's got one eye on the tax collector, one eye on himself, but no eye on God. And in the end, it doesn't matter how high up the social ladder you are when you compare yourself to God, who is perfect in every way. There is no corner of darkness in the character of God doesn't matter how far up the social ladder you are. We pay, we fall so far short when it comes to the perfect character of God. In the end, he hadn't really come to the temple to pray. He'd just come to boast and brag. Let's look at the, the uh, tax collector's prayer. It's very different. In verse 13, it says this. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice firstly his posture. He doesn't come into the temple because he realizes that as he walks into the temple, he comes into the very presence of a perfect and holy God. So he keeps his distance because he's nervous. And he doesn't stand and pray and announce Instead, he hangs his head in shame and he beats his chest, which is a cultural symbol of deep grief and pain and and kind of appropriate because that's where the problem is. It's an issue of the heart. and He cries out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't list a bunch of deeds. He's got nothing to bring to God. He doesn't appeal to a track record. It's not like he even plays the comparison game. It's not like he comes to the temple and goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like that self-righteous jerk over there who can't even admit that he's got a problem. Right? He doesn't do that. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A simple plea for help. Because he realizes that he needs God. He desperately needs God. And here's the twist in the story. This this is what makes this story shocking and, and, if I dare say, offensive to some of Jesus' original listeners. This is what it says in verse 14. I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector... Went, rather than the other, the Pharisee went home justified, that is, right and approved by God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you're, if you're there listening to this story for the first time, your response to that moment is to say, well, "What? What? Hang on a sec. The tax collector goes home right with God? Hang on a second Jesus I think you've got the characters mixed up. It's this moment in the story that the original listeners realize that they've been cheering for the wrong guy. I don't know if you remember the Terminator movies. Anyone remember Terminator 1 and 2? It's got to be some of my favorite movies. Maybe it's just the movies of my generation and partly I think because Guns and Roses were you know soundtrack to those any old school Guns and Roses fans any Children of the 90s. That was me. Um, I remember watching Terminator 1. Probably wasn't allowed to watch it back then anyway. Probably snuck in and watched a movie that my mum and dad didn't want, 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 want me to see. But remember watching Terminator 1. Arnie, human cyborg robot sent back into the past from the future to kill John Connor, who's played by Edward Furlong. And then we get to Terminator 2. You Remember the opening scene? Arnie, T eight hundred, beamed back from the future into the past. He's naked, he's buffed. <laughs> he appears at this kind of like roadside trucky, bikey bar, and he walks into the bar. He scans the people at the bar. He walks up to a guy and says, "I'm going to need your jacket, your motorcycle," and uh, steals this guy's clothes, his bike. And he walks out of the bar, he's got black boots on, he's got black pants, he's got a black shirt, he's got a black leather jacket, he's got black sunglasses, he's got a black sawn-off Winchester lever-action shotgun, and he rides off down the freeway on a black Harley Davidson, and the music in the background is bad to the bone. <laughs> All right? So if you're reading the sub-narrative there, what the director is trying to tell you, bad guy, okay? Next scene, T-1000 appears on the scene. He appears. Again, he's naked. Why do they come naked? Um, And and the opening scene is him walking off. He's got pristine, polished black boots, immaculately pressed blue trousers, perfectly combed hair, much like this. (laughs) And he drives off down the ferry in a police vehicle. And you get to that scene, right? In the hospital hallway, John Connor is there. And bursting through the doors comes Arnie. And bursting through the doors at the other, other end of the hallway comes the, the police terminator. And you freak out. You're like, oh, I hope Arnie doesn't get to him. And, and you think... Surely he won't. It would make for such a short movie, he finally gets to him and kills him. And Arnie gets to him first, he puts his hand out, he says, Come with me if you want to live. And he grabs him and he shields him from the other guy who tries to shoot him and you freak out because you realise in that moment you've been tricked. The directors have been playing this narrative trick on you, making you think that here is the good guy, but he's actually the bad guy. And here is the bad guy, and he's actually the good guy. What I'm trying to say is this. Verse 14 is the Terminator 2 moment of the Bible. (laughs) The original listeners to this story have that moment. They're like, oh, we've been cheering for the wrong guy. In fact, it's, it's not like a moment of relief, like you're relieved and terminated too. It's a moment of shock and indignation that the original hearers would have felt. You know, when Jesus tells parables, I don't know if you've heard this definition, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Not true. Jesus tells stories, parables, often to shock people, to get a response out of them. And the response that Jesus wants from this parable is this. How, Jesus, how can it be that the obvious bad guy goes home right with God and the obvious good guy doesn't? How how is that possible, Jesus? Jesus, is there something about this tax collector's prayer that Jesus loves and affirms? The answer is yes. There are two things that Jesus, two things at least, that Jesus loves about this prayer. The first is that the tax collector recognizes his sin. You notice there he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes that his life is a string of offenses, failures, mistakes, ripping people off. You know, it's easy for us to think that sin is just all of the bad things that you do. I don't know if you've had the, um, the Streets Magnum Seven Deadly Sins series here in the States. We've had you know Magnum Ego, like double chocolate and caramel. We think that's what sin is. Just this, this little indulgence, it's not too bad. The reality is sin is not something we do, it's who we are. It's who we are as people. It's an attitude that rejects God, it's an attitude that puts ourself on the throne of our lives in this world. He recognizes his sin. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't compare himself. He just simply admits his failure. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the first thing that Jesus loves. The second thing that Jesus loves about this prayer is that he asks for help. He says, God... Have mercy on me. Forgive me. He's got nothing to offer. He's got no good works to balance the bad out. If that were even ever possible for us to do, he comes with empty hands and says, God, I need your help to fix the mess that I've made with my life. Please have mercy. Now, that word mercy is carefully chosen. Because as that tax collector went to the temple that day, he would have noticed something as he walked into the temple. He would have noticed the altar. That structure where the high priest on the day of atonement would take a, a, a goat and slit its throat and his blood would be shed on behalf on, for the sins of the people. The mercy seat is what it's called. And so when this tax collector asks God for mercy He's asking God to do the very thing to him that happens on that altar on the Day of Atonement. Show mercy. God, deal with my sin. That his sacrifice of this lamb would remove sin and and take guilt and shame away. He wants that Feeling of shame that he experiences for ripping off his own people, he wants that feeling to be dealt with and gone. It's what he's asking for have mercy on me. And that's exactly what the death of Jesus does. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb whose blood washes our sin away. It's in Christ that we have mercy and forgiveness, that shame and sin and brokenness are dealt with. That's the good news of the gospel, the Christian message. And you know, when, when I'm accepted and loved and valued by the God of the universe not based on my performance, not based on my track record, but based on what Jesus has done. Then and only then am I entirely and truly free. Free to stop comparing myself to others, to try and validate myself. Free to stop trying to appeal to God based on my list of track records. I'm truly free. We live in a world that values performance, do we not? You get a good mark, you get into the college degree that you want to. You do a good job, you get a promotion. You get a good time, you get the medal. We live in a world that's obsessed with performance and sometimes we bring that attitude to the Christian faith and to God And we think if I can perform for him, then he'll accept me when the reality is that Jesus never said, perform for God and he'll love you. That's not love. That's a contract. It's what you sign when you go to your workplace. I agree to perform for you that you will pay me my wage. The Christian faith is free grace. That you're acceptable based on what Jesus has done for you. We're told a lie, and I'm sure you, Americans believe this lie as much as Australians do, and the lie is this. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's a lie. If heaven is for good people, I'm telling you, it's empty. It's just God... Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If heaven is for good people, it's empty. In fact, Luke tells us, the one who wrote this story, he tells us that that Jesus says that that the Pharisees and the prostitutes, sorry, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into heaven ahead of the religious people. How can that be? Goodness is not the metric that God uses to judge our acceptableness. There has to be another metric. What is it? Jesus tells us here it's humility. Humility. Not humility as a character trait, like man, that guy's so humble. I like that guy. But humility is a spiritual attitude that has an honest look at the soul. And says, you know what, I've messed this up and I desperately need God to fix it. That kind of humility. Not a humility that boasts of track records and social standing. But one that cries out desperately for help. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That is the mantra of religion. You see, religion says if you tick enough boxes tick, 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 do all these things, yep, then then you'll be acceptable to God because you will have earned his approval. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. God accepts you based on the death of Jesus. The problem with the, the solution that the Pharisee offers, all of the things that he lists off there, they're all external, are they not? Fasting, serving, giving... Those things don't fix the problem of the heart. It's an external solution to an internal problem. And what we really need is someone to fix the internal problem for us. Jesus can't stand that kind of religion because it makes a mockery of the cross and it weighs people down with a burden that they cannot carry. And Jesus doesn't want to weigh people down. He wants to set them free. He wants to set you free. The point of this whole story is that no matter where you stand, no matter whose shoes you are in, you all need Jesus. Every single one of us. We all need Jesus. Grace is the ultimate leveler. You know They say the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. We all come to Jesus on equal terms. Sinners in desperate need of grace. There can be no superiority with grace. Right? There's no podiums. I don't know if you realize there's not a first-class flight to heaven. Right? We all fly economy. Every single one of us fly economy. There's no packing order. As Lorenzo read earlier, there is no slave nor free, Gentile nor Jew, Man or woman, we are all one in Christ because we all come equally in need of Jesus. And when you get grace, when you get that the love of God is a gift that is given to you because of Jesus, that ought to destroy any sense of superiority. Social superiority, racial superiority, religious superiority, grace, is the ultimate leveler. And it's also shocking. It's also the shock of this story. But the shock of the story is also a relief, is it not? That Jesus has done for me what I cannot possibly do for myself. Really, this story tells us that there are There are only two ways that we can be right with God. The first way is to attempt to justify ourselves, that we will appeal to our track record, that we will look down the social ladder and and make ourselves think that we're good. It's a flawed system. That system will either lead to you feeling self-righteous and proud because you think you're better than anyone else, or it will cripple you because you cannot live up to that standard. That's one way. The other way is to humble yourself and ask God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Maybe there's some here today who realize that you've been working off a flawed system of self-justification, that you need Jesus. You need him to have mercy on you. Because no matter how hard you try, you cannot Justify. You cannot make yourself right. In the end, our significance doesn't come from the evaluations that we make in comparison. Our our significance comes from the fact that we've been created in the image of God. And that despite our mistakes, despite the boxes we fail to tick, that God loves us in Christ. That's what makes you significant. Not the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the suburb you live in, the color of your skin. The fact that Jesus shed his precious blood for you makes you valuable. you got a friend from high school who I invited to church once and he said to me, I can't come to church. I said, why not? Why can't you come to church? Church is great. He said, no, I can't come to church. Because on the weekend I go shoot pigs, I kill them, I eat them, I drink beer, I get drunk and I swear lots. If I come to church, the roof will fall in on me. I was like, man, that's what you think church is all about, you really need to come to church. But isn't that the cultural narrative? That church is for religious good people like Ned Flanders. They don't even exist, right? Church is not for people who've got it all together. Church is for people who need Jesus. Churches for people like a guy from my church whose marriage is on the rocks because over the five years he's been married, he's been sleeping with prostitutes and hooking up with women all over the place. Churches for guys like him who desperately need Jesus to fix the mess in his life. And Churches for my friend who grew up in a Christian home, Christian mum and dad, Christian brother and sister, Went to a Christian church and a Christian youth ministry and a Christian school. and had Christian teachers and Christian friends and a Christian goldfish and a Christian dog. And, <laughs> and she realized that in her heart she thought she was better than everyone else. Because she'd never done anything wrong. And she realized that she needed Jesus every day. Just as much as the guy sitting next to her with his life on the rocks and his marriage messed up. Church is not for the perfect people. Church is for everyone because everyone needs Jesus. In church, in collective church, and Anchor Church Sydney, we need to be communities that are saturated in the grace of God. Communities that get this and live it out. I want you to imagine 12 months later. Tax collector goes back to the temple to pray. He walks into the temple, got a bit more pep in his step this time compared to the last time. He's kind of strutting in. He's feeling good. He comes in, and as he walks into the temple, he notices a lady standing in the back corner. And he's, oh yeah, yeah, she's the prostitute in the town. And he walks in. He comes and he prays and he says, God, I thank you for your mercy. And I'm, I'm no, I, I know I'm not the man that I ought to be, but at least I'm not the man I was. And as for this prostitute over there, I'm no better than her. Would you show mercy to her like you showed it to me? Amen. And he walks over, puts his arm around her and shares his story with her. It's the kind of community the church needs to be. A community that gets grace. Not a community that says, i oh, fix your life up and then you can come and be a part of us. The point of this parable is that we all need Jesus, every single one of us. More than we care to admit, we need Jesus. We need his grace, wherever we are today. The point of the story is, don't be like the Pharisee, because he's a religious jerk. The point of the story is, be like the tax collector who says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And don't just be like that once. Be like that every Single day, God, would you renew my eyes for the gospel? God, would you renew in me a sense of my need for Jesus? God, would you help me to see that so often I put myself on a pedestal and think that I'm better than everyone else? Remind me I'm not. Maybe you're here today and you've been playing that comparison game for too long. Looking down on others. You've realized today that's a flawed system that will never work in achieving your own sense of self-worth, that you need Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've been reminded again that you are loved, that you are valued because of what Jesus has done and not because of the opinions of other people and not because of where you place yourself. Maybe you're here today because you just need to be reminded of the good news that Jesus has set you free. Wherever you find yourself today, wherever I find myself, we all need Jesus. And so I'm going to pray as the band comes up. I'm going to pray that we would see our need and humbly come to him. And that we will just receive the grace that he longs to give us. So let me let me pray now.